Well, welcome to our, our final episode edition of the story. Uh, we've sped it up a little bit right on through the, the New Testament in just a couple weeks. So already, as soon as I say that phrase, the end times, there's probably all sorts of things that are going through your mind, and you're probably hoping I'm going to cover some stuff that I'm probably not going to cover. Uh, last week, we looked at the birth of Jesus and how it was related to the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, prophecies, the covenant that God had given, going back to Abraham, and even before that, in reality, to Genesis 3.15 in what is called the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel promise. And so as we are, due to our, our transition of our ministry, I wanted to finish the story, and so that left us with uh, two weeks to cover the whole New Testament. But that's okay, because last week we covered how Jesus came, and he, he was born, and how that fulfilled a, a huge chunk of it, and, and what he did growing up. And today we're going to complete that with looking at a little bit of his, his ministry, but more so uh, who he was um, and what he did. And so you might be thinking... The end times, you know, when and where and who and how, but the end times is about the people of God being in the presence of God, all right, where they were supposed to be all along. Everything else is secondary. So when you get into all the debates about the end times, eschatology, and, and different types of millennial issues and, and all this type of stuff, when Jesus is going to come back, well, no one knows the hour Jesus is going to come back, so don't bother arguing about that one. As we saw last week, because humanity could not maintain any semblance of holiness on their own, God himself came to earth as a man, Jesus. Now, that was a game changer. Okay, When God became a man, that's a game changer. Okay, Christianity is distinct from all other belief systems and religions because of that. So Christ comes as the presence of God to redeem. And he comes as, as three things, three, three roles, if you will, prophet, priest, and king. And we want to unpack these three roles today, prophet, priest, and king, and see how they relate to what Jesus was doing, uh, the work that he did, and how that relates to the end times. As prophet, as greater than Moses, he proclaims redemption, bringing us a better deliverance from exile. We'll unpack this in a moment. As priest, greater than Aaron, Zadok, and Melchizedek, he purchases redemption, being the once-for-all substitutionary and atoning sacrifice for salvation. And as king, greater than King David, he presides over a newly redeemed people, a kingdom that has no end. So prophet, priest, and king is who Jesus comes as. All of this is accomplished only because, as we learned last week, Jesus is God come in the flesh, the incarnation. No mere human could accomplish what Jesus accomplished. The best of the prophets, Moses, for instance, couldn't do it. The best of the priests couldn't do it. The best of the kings, David, couldn't do it. They were all broken, frail, given to temptation and weakness of sin. You read the pages of Scripture, and it does not hide the, the foibles, the sins of, of these men. As great as David was, he was a sinner, and we can read about his sin. You can read about his confession of his sin in Psalm 51. As great as Moses was, Moses had sins also. And so that is the case with each person. But Jesus is the exception. Christ conquered the temptation. You can read about that in uh, Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4. He was tempted in all three ways, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, that every one of you and I are tempted with. But the difference is he succeeded. He did not give in to any of those temptations. He did not sin in any of those ways. 
1 John 2.16 repeats those three temptations, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And if you look at Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that Adam and Eve faced those same three temptations. And so whatever your sin issues are, they come in 31 flavors or more, like Baskin-Robbins, I suppose, but there's only three at the end of the day. It's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so Jesus comes, <clears throat> and he comes on the scene, and he's tested before he does his ministry. If you look at the way the Gospels are arranged, you'll see that Jesus is in the wilderness. He's driven there by the Spirit. He's tempted by the devil, and he succeeds in these three temptations. And then he goes and begins his ministry. The first one, the first area that we're looking at, prophet, priest, and king, is Jesus as the prophet. As a, as a prophet, Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God to bring us into the kingdom of God. Matthew's Gospel not only sets Jesus up as the new David, which we looked at last week with the genealogies in chapter 1, and how that's all um, orchestrated to show that Jesus is the new and the better King David, but Matthew also shows us that Jesus is the new and better Moses. So Matthew, no surprise, Matthew being a Hebrew, Jewish culture, Jewish past, is demonstrating from the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that Jesus fulfills these aspects, and that the, the aspect of the King David points to Jesus. The aspect of a prophet Moses points to Jesus. The aspect of a, uh, a priest, particularly in the aspect of Melchizedek, points forward to Jesus. And he is the greater one in each of these categories. <clears throat> so Matthew sets Jesus up as the, the new David, but also as the new Moses. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, we read, Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. So here we see there's a contrast, okay, set up between Moses, who every Jewish person would revere as a great prophet, and Jesus has greater honor and greater glory than Moses. We'll see also Deuteronomy 18, 15, if we backtrack, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is Moses speaking way, 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 thousands of years before the passage we just read in Hebrews, and Moses says that after I'm gone, God is going to raise up a new prophet like me. Well, the people have been waiting for years. Who is it? Which prophet? Is it Elijah? Is it Elisha? Is it, is it Isaiah? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Malachi? Is it, who, who is it? No, it, it wasn't any of them. It's Jesus who is a prophet like Moses and greater than Moses. In John chapter 5, verse 46, it said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote about me. Here Jesus is saying that the writings of the Old Testament are actually about Jesus. So yeah, Jesus didn't come as a man until the New Testament times, but the writings of the Old Testament were actually about Jesus and pointed forward to Jesus. And so Jesus told the people, he said, listen, you don't get it because you never understood Moses. You think you do, but you don't. It's easy to, to know the scriptures in a sense. It's like, like you can't any book. Okay? For people like me that study them all the time, this, is a, this can be an even bigger danger. But it's not just a danger for people like myself. It's a danger for anybody that, that reads the scriptures. That the danger is that we don't take the, the scriptures and, and, and let it change our lives, and we don't do what's going on here. Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. Jesus just doesn't come on the scene in the New Testament, the whole of Scripture. That's why I tell all you guys, you want to know about Christianity, you're trying to figure it out. You study Jesus. Who is Jesus? And that 
We'll set the stage. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22, we have another passage of scripture quoting Moses. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and you must listen to him. Now, what's going on here? Why do I put this on the screen again? Because this isn't Moses speaking. This is New Testament. This is the book of Acts. This is the apostles talking. And they're saying, listen, God had already said this was going to happen in the Old Testament. You're supposed to listen to Moses, and a new prophet like Moses was going to show up. He did. It's Jesus. And you crucified him because Acts is after the gospel. So he'd already been crucified, all right? But he's been raised. So not only does Jesus speak of the word of God, but he is the word of God, as we saw last week, John 1, 1, etc. Not only does Jesus announce the word of salvation, he is the word of salvation. So he comes as a prophet speaking the word, but he is the word. He comes as a prophet uh, announcing or proclaiming the word of salvation, but more than that, he is the word of salvation. He is the embodiment of the prophetic word. What is prophecy? Prophecy is the revelation of God. It's a word that God sends to a person that the person then is supposed to tell other people. Well, in this case, Jesus is the prophecy. Yes, he speaks them, but he is the prophecy. He is the revelation of God made manifest in human flesh. When Jesus picks up the scroll in the Gospels in Luke chapter 4, verses uh, 17 to 21, he picks up this scroll and he reads Isaiah. It says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place, which means he knew the scriptures, by the way, where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back. Everyone sa he sat down, and they all looked at him. What's he going to say? And then here's what he said. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled. So what does that mean, Kevin? What does that mean? Jesus is claiming he just fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, written hundreds of years earlier, that he is the one coming, the anointed one, the Messiah, who is going to come, redeem the people from their sins. He is a prophet par excellence. He declared himself to be the promised Messiah. So you have a choice. He's either the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of heaven, and now the God of earth, or he is a liar, because he just said he was. So either he is or isn't. Or he's a lunatic. He's crazy. He's a madman. That's your three choices with Jesus. He can't be a good person. He can't be a good man only. He can't be a good teacher. You have these people that say, oh, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He taught great stuff. He taught that he was God. If you don't believe me, read the book of John, Gospel of John. Why the Pharisees picked up stones to throw at him? It says right in the text, because he claimed to be God, he claimed to be equal with God. If you're equal with God, you're God. Do you claim to be equal to God? If you do, you're delusional. You're not equal to God. Anybody that claims to be equal to God, you would immediately say you're messed in the head, or you're joking, or you're lunatic, or you're crazy. Jesus claimed to be equal to God. That's called blasphemy in the Jewish culture. The, the penalty is death. They pick up rocks to, to throw at you. Not little pebbles. Baseball size or bigger. They're going to throw them until you're dead. Jesus claimed to be God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we see that the, the writer of Hebrews, okay, many years after Jesus has been dead, buried, and rose again back in heaven, he says this. He says, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. So yeah, prophets, all through the Bible. 
at different times and in different ways. In these last days, so we're in the last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son. God has appointed him heir of all things, and he made the universe through him. The, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, who is Jesus? That, that first verse, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says that in, in many ways, in the times past, God spoke to different prophets in different ways. But now he has spoken in these last days, we're in the last days, he has spoken to us through Jesus. What does it mean we're in the last days? The last days is this period of time where God's revelation has come through Jesus Christ. So this continues until he comes back. That's the last days. Throughout the Old Testament, the Exodus was the event par excellence that demonstrated redemption. You want to know what is the one event every Jewish person knows about? It is the Exodus. God's people being set free from slavery in Egypt. But Jesus sets out a greater redemption, a freedom from slavery that all of mankind has been in bondage to, slavery to sin. The Exodus did not free the people from their sin. The Exodus freed the people from their slavery to Pharaoh. It did not free them from their slavery to themselves and their sin. You know what your number one problem is? It's not the guy down the street. It's not the kid in the classroom. It's not your teacher. It's not your parent. You know what your number one problem is? Go look in the mirror. That's your number one problem. Your number one problem is you. You are your number one problem. You are your greatest enemy. Because, as Jose said, the sin factor. So, you want the cure, you need the cure for sin. And you don't have the cure. Jesus is the cure for sin. Israel may have left Egypt, but Egypt, as it's often said, hadn't left them. They continued to struggle with covenant faithfulness and trusting God. They repeatedly failed to be the people of the promise. To live in God's presence requires a certain standard of cleanliness and of holiness, all of which is demonstrated in the book of Leviticus and the whole sacrificial system. Yet Israel fell far short. There were many redemption exodus moments in the scriptures. Every time they were freed from something, it was a reminder of the great exodus event that occurred back and is recorded in the book of Exodus. Babylon was the other major exodus event. We just talked about that a couple weeks ago. They were sent into exile, and then they are then brought back. The greatest one, though, is the spiritual exodus that Jesus himself redeems us from, from the curse of sin. Like Moses, Jesus exercises authority over the sea and the wind. Like Moses and Elisha, he feeds people in miraculous ways. Um, so profusely that there's 12 baskets of food left, enough for all 12 clans of Israel. Like Elijah, he manifests extraordinary knowledge. He does extravagant-looking tricks, such as telling expert fishermen where to find an extraordinary catch of fish, except they're not tricks. Or telling one of them that in the mouth of the fish that he catches, they'll find money to pay the temple dues. As Elijah and Elisha multiply oil, he multiplies wine. He's like Moses, Elijah, or Elisha, but he's more than they were. He's more than all of that. He behaves more like God at the Red Sea than like Moses. He's manifesting his sovereignty, his control. He is more than any of the prophets. He is greater than all. Jesus comes as prophet. Jesus, number two, comes as priest. What were priests? Priests were mediators. They were a go-between. 
God was too holy for you to get close to God. If you got too close, you get obliterated, like if you got too close to the sun. You can't stand in his presence. Look at Isaiah 6, when he's encountering God in God's presence. He's got to fall on his face. He's afraid he's going to die. Priests were mediators. The sin of the people separated them. This was especially seen in the Day of Atonement, on the 14th day of that seventh month, of which the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer the atoning blood. The privilege of the high priest is seen in the care taken to describe his duties, his requirements, the preparation on the special day that was all going on. However, despite the very detailed manner in which God demanded this be done, the priesthood was corrupted in many ways. Entire family lines were wiped out due to lack of respect, starting with Aaron's own two sons, Hophni and Phineas. Right in the beginning, an entire line is wiped out. And they're not the only ones. During the time of the judges, and then later, during the time of the kings, priests are, are bought and sold to be mediators between pagan gods. Others are struck down by kings gone mad, like Saul. So, not only could it be a dangerous business from humans, but it could be a dangerous business from God. Kings struck them down, God struck them down. They also sold themselves out to be mediums for pagans. We find again in Hebrews that Jesus is superior to all the priests. You want to read a book of the Bible that talks about how superior Jesus is to everything? That book is Hebrews. In fact, he's superior to all creation, including angels and demons, Moses, etc. Jesus is a priest, not from the sinful human line, but rather he's, he is the sinless offering for sinful humanity. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 4 tells us, For every high priest that is taken from men is appointed in service to God, for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is subject to weakness. Because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as for the people. He's talking about a regular human priest, okay? No one takes this honor on himself. So you don't just decide to be a priest, okay? Even though at one point, one of the kings, who was not obviously following God, just set up his own group of priests. You, you don't choose to be a king. God said, or I mean a priest. God said who was going to be the priest. So Aaron was called by God to be the priest. Then in the next verse, it says, <coughs> oh, that was it, sorry. So Aaron was called by God to be the priest. But uh, Jesus is a priest after a whole different order. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, I don't think it's on the screen, and 27, um, the author of Hebrews continues to explain this idea that uh, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to get into the idea of Melchizedek. Uh, some people think it was actually Jesus uh, incarnate before he came as a man. Some people think that um, he was just a person that we, we don't have any other information about. And so when they're talking about the fact that he doesn't have a genealogy, etc., it's just because we don't know anything about him. And so because we don't know anything else about him, it's kind of like Jesus in that sense, um, that he comes almost from nowhere on the scene, if you will. Because Jesus and his humanness uh, was not actually from Mary and Joseph, okay? He was raised by them, but specifically he was God incarnate. So, in that sense, he is not like any of the other human priests, okay? So he's greater than all of them. So he is, therefore, the perfect priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says that, Clean out the old yeast so you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened, for look at this, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. So not only is Jesus the priest and a greater priest, but he's also the sacrifice. Now, the priests in the Old Testament did not offer themselves. 
They offered an animal. Jesus comes in and he offers himself. So he is a priest who's also offering himself. You can see that in Hebrews also. I think it's in 9.13 or something. That's not on the screen. So Jesus is both the, the perfect and eternal. He's the priest and he's also the sacrifice. And because of that, you can go to him today. He's still your mediator. That's who you go to. All right? You don't go to some other saint or some other whatever else. You, you go to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of your faith. Him. As John the Baptist proclaimed, um, as he saw Jesus coming towards him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The entire phrase, Lamb of God, and takes away the sins of the world, is predicated on the meaning of the Old Testament. The idea that the sacrifices, the Lamb, okay, is slain as a sacrifice. And here he's saying, John is saying, Jesus is the Lamb who comes from God, who is going to take away what sins? The sins of the whole world. The only reason Jesus is called a lamb is for that very reason. With Christ, the temple would no longer be needed, and neither will the sacrifice in the Levitical system. That's why we're not here today cutting a lamb's throat. That's why there's no altar in here. It's no longer needed, because Christ was the high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice once for all, as the book of Hebrews tells us. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, what happened on that day was that basically everything was rebalanced out. So the sins filled up, and then it gets kind of rebalanced, okay, for the time being. But the deal is that the sins were never actually taken away. Because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away human sin. But Christ can. Christ is a like-in-kind sacrifice. He came as a human, not as a goat. So he actually can take away human sin. By substitution. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 and 26, it says, The Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, a model of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now, what he's saying is this. This is Hebrews again. He's saying, Jesus as his sacrifice, Jesus wasn't sacrificed in the human temple. It wasn't the tabernacle Moses made. It wasn't the temple that Solomon made. It wasn't the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah uh, rebuilt. It wasn't the temple that Herod had made, Jesus was offered in the temple of God in heaven. Jesus was offered to God himself, the Father, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times, so Jesus doesn't go every year on the Day of Atonement still to offer himself as a sacrifice, like the high priest did. Rather, next verse, he, otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. If Jesus sacrificed each year, then how many times would he be killed? Each year. It would be 2,000 times by now. But that's not what took place. Since by now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not the sacrifice of a bull, not a goat, not a lamb. You notice it also says the end of the ages. Again, we're in the end time. As Dr. Yarbrough has said, there's no single definitive New Testament explanation of the atonement. Jesus is presented as having paid the penalty for sin. In Romans 3 and 6, he died in the place of sinners so they might become God's righteousness. He redeemed sinners through his blood, Ephesians 1, 7. He paid the price for sinners to go free, 1 Corinthians 6, 20 and Galatians 5, 1. He won the victory over death and sin, sharing with believers the victory, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. 
that he paraded in a spectacular fashion by the cross, Colossians 2.15. He put an end to the hostility between warring human factions, most notably the Jews and the Gentiles, Ephesians 2.14-18, with implications for all other ethnic divisions. His example of patient suffering according to God's will and the demands of his kingdom is a precedent for his people to follow, according to 1 Peter 2.21-23. Peter's statement captures well the means and the importance of Jesus' ministry of atonement. Peter said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, 1 Peter 2.24. By his wounds you have been healed. That's a quote out of Isaiah. What does that have to do with? It means your sin has been taken away, so now you can live a righteous and a holy life. It's not so you can do whatever you want. It's not so you have a free pass and, oh, yes, it's okay. God will forgive me for it. That's garbage. It's so that you can do what you were created to do and live in holiness before a holy God. Jesus took the punishment for your sins. Jesus took the punishment for your specific sins, and he did it willingly. He's the substitute and the punishment for your sins. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is only the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus himself, come in the flesh human. So Jesus' sacrifice opens the doors to the completion of God's end-time goal. The opening of the door was to bring God's people back into God's place, living in God's presence with God's power. Not only has the door opened, but you are now invited to be a priest of the Most High God. So in the Old Testament, you had the priest, then Jesus comes as the greater priest, but it doesn't even end there. Now you are invited to be a priest. Every believer, not a certain class, you don't have to be in Aaron's line, the Levite's tribe. No, you yourself are invited by God to be a priest. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are royal priests, picking up on the Old Testament understanding of priests and temples. The Apostle John says, you're a priest to God and Father in Revelation 1.6. says, your sacrifice now is your whole life a living sacrifice, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 12. <clears throat> you got the Revelation one? He made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. The glory and dominion are his forever and ever. So you are called by God to be a priest, a kingdom of priests. That's what Israel was supposed to be, priests or mediators. But we already said Jesus is the only, only mediator. So why are you a priest? What's the role of a priest if Jesus is the only priest between man and God? Well, glad you asked. As priests of the Most High God, you are to be a holy and blameless person living before God. That's what they were called to do in the Old Testament too. That's why purity and lifestyle matters. That's why sexual purity matters, Okay. That's why Paul spends multiple chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians talking about sexual purity. But you are to be his ambassador also. In the second letter, Paul writes, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, it says, And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. Sanctuary is temple. We are the temple. As God said, I will dwell among them, I will walk among them, I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. So you become God's priests. We as a group, as the church, become God's temple, okay? That's probably more corporate than just individual. We have a tendency in our American culture to take everything individually. That you are the temple, etc. When there's, there's, that's true, the Holy Spirit lives in you. But we as the church are the temple also. So this sounds very similar, if you look at this here, 
See the, the bold part? Yeah, that's, that means it's an Old Testament quotation. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11. Leave, leave, go out from there. Do not touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourself, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. This is quoted by Paul in the New Testament. It says, Come out from among them and be ye pure and holy and clean. That's what God already told his people in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17 says similarly, says this is what the Lord says, I'll gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. I will give you that land. He's going to take them and put them in their place. He's going to gather them together. You put all these together, and you combine it with what Paul is saying in the New Testament in Corinthians, and God is gathering the people back. Okay, We are to be these ambassadors and priests to help. When a caterpillar is transformed into a beautiful butterfly, it doesn't return to its former state. Instead of sluggishly crawling around on the ground, it soars into the heavens. And as you're already seated in the heavenly places, according to the scriptures, with Christ himself, you should be soaring through life, not sluggishly enduring it like a caterpillar. Be a butterfly. Which one do people rather look at? Butterflies. They're beautiful. They, you purposely buy plants that attract them so that you can see the butterflies fluttering around in your backyard. We see them all the time because we have a bunch of flowers. The church is the light of Revelation 11, calling all nations to come and worship the king, King Jesus. You are called by God to be his ambassador, 1 Corinthians 15 20, or 2 Corinthians 15 20, and you are called by God to be a priest of the Most High God, a priest that teaches people God's word, a priest that shows them what God has shown you, a priest that lives in a holy and devout manner so that people would know that you are distinct and different from everybody else. Watch this video <coughs> that plays into what we're talking about before we move to the third category of Jesus as king. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here, there's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy, because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart, and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now, and the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So Explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. 
that toward heaven and the uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reunited. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to but we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more heaven on earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again.
hopefully that helps you understand a little bit of what we were talking about and what we've talked about in previous weeks, about how Jesus comes as both the priest, but he also comes as the sacrifice. And he creates this atoning sacrifice that allows for you and I to be able to then enter into the presence of God. Remember, the whole problem that we've been talking about is getting back into the presence of God, to get God's people into God's place in God's presence and living by God's power. And so that's what this is about. So that's why when he says that whole thing about flying over to heaven isn't the point of the, the story. That's correct. That's not the point of the Bible. Okay, America has, has jacked the, the story. Um, they've hijacked it. Okay, the point is for God to get back to what it was, it's heaven on earth. So this whole thing about we're going to fly up in the sky and whatnot when, when uh, you know, for heaven. If you, if you read the Bible, you'll see that the new heavens and new earth, they come down. The whole point was that God was going to renew the earth because Adam and Eve jacked it all up. It's been hijacked. When you have a hijacker, what do you do? You take out the hijacker, right? And so they've got to take out the hijacker. Who's the hijacker? It's not a who. It's a what? Sin. But Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, says that the last enemy to be taken out is death. Now that's really two sides of the same coin. Because death only exists because sin exists. So if there's no sin, there's no death, and if no death, no sin. So if you take out death, it means sin's been taken out. If you take out sin, you don't have to. You with me? So flip the coin either way, okay? So death is the last enemy, okay? So again. Who's your number one enemy? Is it Satan? No, it's not. Who's your number one enemy? Y yourself is your number one enemy, yes. Okay, and then death, you know, it's the result of the sin that you yourself choose to do when you yourself choose to be separated from God and not follow God. Okay, so you need to get back to being with God. So Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and thirdly and lastly, this morning, Jesus is king. They didn't talk much about that. They talked about him being the priest in there, which is why we showed up what we did. As we saw last week, though, Jesus is the son of David. is a lineage of royalty, and this was the setup for him to be the new and the greater King David. This is clearly seen in Matthew 21, verse 5. It says, Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In Matthew 21, verse 9, he continues, he says, The crowds went ahead, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're praising him. This is the king. This is Jesus the king, the Messiah, the anointed one. Yes. And in verse 15, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders he did and the children shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were indignant. That means they were ticked off. They were mad. Okay? Remember, Matthew's announcing this in the genealogy chapter 1, so this should come as no surprise by the time you get to chapter 21. There's 28 chapters in Matthew. This is in 21. There's three quarters of the way through. But this is not new if you've read carefully, because Matthew set this up in chapter 1 when he said that Jesus was from the line of David, and he kept saying, David, 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 David. Jesus is the new David. And so, yeah, he's the new king, replacing David on the throne from the line of David. Unlike David, Jesus would be the one who is not left to decay in the grave. Peter picks this image up in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and then 29 to 32. And he's doing this because if you read Psalm 16, it's not on the screen, I don't think, but Psalm 16, verse 8 to 11, okay, uh, David talks about this future ruler, okay, that 
will not decay in the ground. Well, Jesus, or, uh, David decayed in the ground. David's bones, all the Jews know where David's bones were buried, okay? They, you go see them, okay? They're decaying in the ground. Not so with Jesus. Because on three days later, the bones hadn't been, been decayed. And Jesus did what three days later? He rose from the dead. So even arguing that David foresaw this, Peter, okay? And then here is an aspect of the all-powerful king that Jesus can conquer death as demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the Davidic descendant who will rule in righteousness and deliver his people. His reign will be without end. Unlike the conquering of King David, Jesus will demonstrate his kingship in servitude. How did David conquer? With a sword. Now when Jesus comes back again, boys, he will come with a sword. But Jesus came as a servant. He was on a donkey. He was a servant. As Jesus climbs the mountain of Golgotha, mockingly clothed in the robes of royalty by the soldiers, his kingship and servanthood come to a climactic union. Jesus becomes the real king of the Jews by becoming the suffering servant of God prophesied about throughout the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah, Isaiah 53, and other places. As king, Jesus has been discussing his kingdom from the beginning of time with the disciples. Even John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, was proclaiming the kingdom of God from the very beginning. If all you guys hear about is the gospel, you know, what's the gospel, what's the gospel? It's the desperate and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, it's more than that. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Go back and find the places that the word gospel is in the New Testament and see how many of them are connected with the phrase kingdom or kingdom of God. It's the gospel, it's the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news of the kingdom of God. What's the good news of the kingdom of God? The good news of the kingdom of God is that the king of the kingdom of God has come to earth to free the slaves of a foreign pagan world to get them back into his kingdom. And just like you saw with all the little purple blobs on the screen, when that happens, you get all these little heaven on earth purple bubbles that go all over the place. That's what's supposed to be happening. Jesus comes not to save primarily from human enemies, like so many of the Jews wanted, but to save from the domineering forces that captivate all of humanity, regardless of the level of human oppression or lack thereof. Spiritual blindness, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is what uh, Paul relates it to, and brokenness. Jesus comes to take back rule over all the world, to defeat the powers of darkness, demonstrated numerous times in the Gospels as he kicks out the forces of evil and darkness, bringing life and restoration, and even resurrection, as demonstrated in the healing of the broken bodies, leprosy, lameness, that's a mini-resurrection, and bringing to life the dead girl, that's a real resurrection, and then Lazarus, that's a real resurrection. But guess what? That little girl and Lazarus, they died again. But, if you're in the kingdom, their physical bodies die, but they carry on, and their physical body will be resurrected in time to come. Jesus was showcasing a sampling of what was to come, what resurrection life in the kingdom of God would be like. As Jesus demonstrated complete control over all of his creation, including the great intruder and enemy of creation, death, he demonstrated this through the event that eclipses the exodus of the Old Testament, the resurrection. If the exodus is the great event of the Old Testament, the resurrection is the great event of the New Testament. The new covenant goes beyond the old covenant and bringing both physical and spiritual life to those who join God's family. The resurrection changes everything. Everything. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. The resurrection is Christianity. It's the cornerstone. 
Without it, there would have been just a bunch of Jews who followed Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher. And after Jesus was killed on the cross, they would have gone back to their fishing and their whatever else. But that's not what happened. Because the resurrection changes everything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, written by the Apostle Paul, he says, Brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it, if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe to no purpose. For I pass on to you the most important words that I received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then the Twelve. And he appeared to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, that means died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me, the Apostle Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, he is what he is. Now verse 12, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now listen carefully to me. Some of you are struggling with these concepts, okay? You're trying to figure out Christianity. Is it real? Is it not? What happens after death? Okay? Listen carefully and wrestle with what this text is saying. This is the heart of the matter. If people are saying there's no resurrection, okay? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. Now think about that carefully. If there's no resurrection, then Christ didn't raise either because that's a resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is without foundation, and so is your faith. Let me simplify that for you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is a joke. There is no Christianity. There is no faith. There is nothing. Everything we've done is a lie. It's a waste of your time. Are you with me on this? The resurrection matters, immensely so. No resurrection, no Christianity. No resurrection, no future resurrection or hope for you. On the other hand, if there is a resurrection, that changes everything. If Jesus rose, then he can make you rise. If Jesus rose, then something out of the ordinary happened. If Jesus rose, then death is not the end game. Because Jesus is more powerful than death, he showed up by the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. In addition, Paul continues, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we testified about God that he raised up Christ. He's saying here, not only that, but if there's no resurrection, we're all liars on top of that because we said he raised Christ. Guys, it matters whether Christ rose from the dead or not. It mattered then, it matters today. If Jesus didn't rise, I'm a liar because I keep telling people and I've told you he rose. If Jesus didn't rise, I'm also deceived because I'm running around and spent the last 20-some-odd years of my life focused on this Christianity thing. On the other hand, if Jesus did rise from the dead, you better get on the right train because he said he's coming back. And if he can be killed and then come back to life, well, that's the train I want to be on because he said he's coming back, so he meant it. The resurrection changes everything. From Adam to David and beyond, no human was able to properly carry out the responsibilities given to them by God which was to rule and to reign as God's vice regent, his ambassador. And so God himself came to establish his dynasty and dominion so that his kingdom could flourish on the earth. What did Jesus come here to do? Jesus came here to demonstrate that he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Okay? He didn't come only for the sacrifice. He did that. 
He had to. He had to do that to buy us back. He had to do that to redeem us. He had to do that to pay for your sin and my sin so that we could be in his presence. Because with your sin, you can't be in his presence. But he also came to show that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he is Lord of Lords and God of God and King of Kings. And how did he show that? Everything he said, they followed suit. He said the demons out, they went out. He said the water stopped, it stopped. He said water to wine, water went to wine. It don't matter what it is. It does what he says because he's the creator. The resurrection was the demonstration penultimate of this. Why? Because he told death to shut up. Now you tell death to shut up and see what happens. But when Jesus tells death to shut up, things come to life. That's the difference. Shortly thereafter, the good news was being spread about, and thousands, sometimes 3,000 in one day in one city were being saved and added to the church. When you're saved, guys, you get added to the church. That means you're part of the church. That means don't leave an empty seat. We may not be here next week. Okay? But we're not the whole church. This is Kirkman Community Church. It's called that because we meet and minister in the Kirkman area. There's hundreds of churches all through this city, and there's millions and billions of them all around the world. If you're a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, next Sunday, don't you spend the whole day at home. You be either with us in Great Pilar, or you be with another group of believers celebrating what? What, what? Why do we even get together on Sunday? This is a big issue. Sunday is not the Sabbath, guys. So it's not the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, honor the Sabbath, and so that's why we're here. This isn't the Sabbath. The Sabbath was yesterday. Why in the world are we here on a Sunday gathered together? We're celebrating the resurrection. Why? That's not a command in Scripture. It's not the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not forsake the assembling together of yourself. It's almost Hebrews 10, 24, and 5, actually, but... But you shall gather together on every Sunday and celebrate the resurrection. That's not a command like that. So why do we do it? Because the resurrection changes everything. No resurrection, no Christianity. No resurrection, no salvation. No resurrection, no holiness. No resurrection, no heaven. Are you with me? Where does the resurrection change? What? Where does the resurrection change? Everything. Everything. One of you got it. Jesus came close to demonstrate that God is not far from any of us. In Acts 17, 27, we read, He did this so they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Last verse, though he is not far from each one of us. You know, I, don't, I don't understand, Kevin. I don't know God. Reach out to God. Beg him to show himself to you. And have an open mind. And don't be closed-minded about it. He did this so that you might be able to become part of his kingdom, so you could be restored to the state that you were intended to be in, a right state, a righteous state. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me unbreak, or break that down for you. Jesus came as righteous and no sin, and he became sin so you could become righteous without sin. How do you become righteous without sin? Jesus gives you his righteousness. You don't have it on your own. He puts it on you from him. It's a swap. He took your sin and gives you cleanness. You with me? You can now go boldly to God. You don't have to be afraid of God. You don't have to pray to somebody else. You go straight to God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and 1 John chapter 2 both tell us that. 
We can boldly go to the throne of God. The Old Testament promises of God being near, of not forsaking, but rather being with his people, Deuteronomy 31, Joshua 1, 5, 1 Kings 8, 5, 57, they come to fulfillment in Jesus, John 14, 18. Upon his departure from earth and return to heaven, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to teach us, to be with us, to seal us, to prepare us for his full presence until he would come back. The promised spirit that came at Pentecost some 2,000 years ago is what makes the Christian life possible. How do, you, how do you go about doing this? There's no longer a need to go to some place to be in God's presence. You don't have to go to the temple. There's no physical temple you go to. He's now present with us 24-7 if you've got the Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit is what makes us holy, enabling us to stand before God, to meet with God, to enjoy His presence. The Spirit is transforming us into the image of God according to 1 Corinthians 3.18. You have been given freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the penalty of sin. It's up to you whether or not you will live in freedom from the presence of sin. I'm going to say that again. You need to get this. You have been given freedom from the power of sin. There's no control over you anymore. Freedom from the penalty of sin. You don't have to go to hell. It's up to you whether or not you will live in the freedom from the presence of sin. Now in heaven, there will be no sin, so the presence will be gone. It's not optional. But right now, you choose to live in the presence of sin or not to live in the presence of sin. And you choose based on whether or not you obey the Holy Spirit inside of you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you need Jesus, the Holy Spirit. You need to get saved. The gathered body of believers, like we do right here, that's the church, is now to be the empowered presence of God. The church is to be the pipeline by which God brings his presence to the rest of the world. As God's dwelling place or the temple, the church is now on mission to fulfill what the Old Testament temple never fulfilled, creating a community defined by God's presence. Where they failed, we can succeed with the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Acts 13, 47, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's our responsibility. You're an ambassador for God, reconciling the world to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says... We are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. What does that mean? God is speaking to other people through you as you teach, speak to them. We plead on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Behold, Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, God's dwelling is with humanity. This is the end of the Bible. This is it. We're wrapping it up here. How does the Bible end? With God dwelling with man. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. We can go back and we can read Revelation chapters 4 and 5. I won't take the time to read through them. Maybe you should read them this week. Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The Revelation 4 and 5 lays out for you the grand, glorious image, the throne room of heaven. What is it like? Everybody say, holy, 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 in the presence of a holy and a mighty God. Verse 11 of chapter 4 of Revelation. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you've created all things and because of your will they exist and were created. Why do you exist? Because God. Why were you created? Because of God. What do you owe him? Everything. The resurrection changes. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice. God's dwelling is with humanity. The end of time 
is about this. God's plan coming to reality. It's about God's people being in God's place, living in God's presence, with God's power. The question for you is, do you have a place in God's kingdom? Do you have a place at God's table? Let me summarize it for you. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Through his resurrection, he promises you a resurrection and restoration, restored back to fellowship with God the Father. In John 14, 3, Jesus said he's leaving for a little while, but he's returning. He says, if I go away and prepare a place, I'll come back. Why? You don't go make a room for somebody and not plan to go get them. So that where I am, you may be also. We read it in Revelation 21. We're reading it in John 14. What is the goal? It is the goal for you to be where God is. The goal is for you and God to be in the same place. For you to be God's people in God's place. God's presence living in God's power. That's the goal. Jesus is coming back. Are you going to be ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation that you've given us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough and care enough about us. God, the, revel- the resurrection changes everything. I pray if there's anybody in here this morning that does not know for sure their sins have been forgiven, they would realize that today could be the day that they start a whole new life, a life of righteousness and holiness, a life where they're no longer controlled by the power and presence of sin. God, I pray this morning you might speak to somebody's heart. I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict them and draw them to yourself. If that's you here this morning, you can cry out to God where you're sitting. There's no magic in the words I'm going to say right now. But if you're being spoken to by God and you think God's talking to you, respond to him. Prayer is talking to God. He says something to you, now you say something to him. You can say this. You can say to God, God, I realize I'm separated from you this morning. I realize I need you in my life. I realize I don't live in your presence and I don't have power over sin. Please help me. I do believe you died on the cross. And I do believe, like the Bible says, that you rose from the dead. And lots of people saw you. And I believe the resurrection can change things. So come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my prophet, priest, and king. Change my life, dear God. Let me be your child. Let me be part of your family. Show me how to live my life in the power of God instead of the power of sin. Take away my sin. I'll be your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that this morning, you became part of God's family. You meant that. If you already were a part of God's family, then listen, dear Christian, you've got a responsibility to do. Jesus is coming back. He's on that long train. I don't know when it's coming into the station, but I know it's coming. And by the time it gets here, it's going to be too late for you to change about your life. This might be the last Sunday morning that we're meeting here at Rotary. But this is not the last Sunday morning you have an opportunity to fellowship with God's people, to be challenged by the word of God, to encourage somebody else in the body of Christ. This is not the last day you have to hear and study from the revelation of God. We are so blessed in this country. You all got Bibles. If you don't have one, see me. I'll give you one today. Don't waste your life. Do something with your life for Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. He's coming back.